14 books, including Fanatical Prospecting, Sales EQ, People Follow You, Virtual Selling, and his latest book, Selling the Price Increase. Jed advises the who's who of the world's leading organizations and their executives on the impact of emotional intelligence, interpersonal skills, and customer-facing activities. He is among the world's most respected thought leaders on prospecting, sales leadership, and customer experience, and truly one of favorite authors. So please help me welcome Jeff Blunt. Joe didn't say anything. 
He just reached across his desk, he grabbed the, the keys to his car, and he motioned for Art to come with him. They walked out the back door of the branch where they worked into the parking lot, and they got in Joe's car, and off they went. And Art said, Joe's not saying anything. But about 15 minutes later, he pulls into a grocery store, tells Art to stay where he is, gets out of the car, goes inside, a few minutes later comes back, and he's carrying one of those brown paper grocery store bags. It's rolled up at the top. He tosses it in the back seat, off they go again. Art says, you know, I'm really getting worried because he's not saying anything to me, not doing anything to me. I just kind of spat at him. And he goes, I really start getting worried when the, the landscape's starting to look familiar. And then suddenly they go to come up to the Kalazi Baking Company gate and they pull into the plant. They park in the parking lot. Joe reaches in the back seat, grabs a brown paper bag, tells Art to get out of the car. They walk inside, go see the receptionist. Tell the receptionist they want to go see Mr. Kalazi, the, the CEO and president of Kalazi Baking Company. She tells them to have a seat, and there they, there they sit, right in the middle of the, of the lobby, Joe and Art, and the brown paper bag sitting on Joe's lap. Art says, at this point, because I'm, I'm, I, I'm almost like, you know, I'm falling apart. Heart's beating really fast. I don't know what's coming next, but I didn't have time to think about it long because uh, a nice lady comes out of the, uh, the back, motions us to go with her, ushers us into Mr. Kalazi's office. Mr. Kalazi says, gentlemen, how can I help you? And uh, uh, Joe says, well, maybe we take a seat? And he says, yeah. So they sit down, and Joe looks at Mr. Kalazi, and he says, well, Mr. Kalazi, young Art here says that you guys have been trying to make a deal. And that our pricing, our rates, are just a little bit too high. For you and I just want to figure out what's going on. And at that, Mr. Kulazi puts his finger right in Joe's face and he says, too high? What do you mean too high? Your prices are in the stratosphere. They're so high we got nothing to talk about. And don't tell me about your quality. Don't tell me about how much better you are than your competitors and your service is better and all those things on your marketing brochures. Don't talk to me about any of it because unless you can get your prices down, we got nothing to talk about. Now, Art sitting next to Joe thinking to himself, I told you so. But Joe doesn't respond. He doesn't react. He just leans back in his chair. And he reaches down to the floor where he put the brown paper bag when they walked into Mr. Kalazi's office. And he picks it up and he sets it on Mr. Kalazi's desk. And he says, Mr. Kalazi, I hear you. He says, uh, but I got one question. Mr. Kalazi says, shoot. He slowly unrolls the top of the brown paper bag. He reaches inside and he pulls out two loaves of bread. On one side, he's got a loaf of generic grocery store white bread. You know, the other side, he's got a loaf of a Kalazi premium Italian bread. And he says, Mr. Kalazi, he says, I got two different loaves of bread. He said, this, this loaf of grocery store bread, he said, it's, it's 80 cents. He said, your bread is $2.40. He said, I'm just curious how you can justify charging almost three times as much for your bread as they do for their bread. And Art said, that's the point where I just wanted to get on my hands and knees and crawl out of the door. <laughs> well, at that, Mr. Kalazi pushes his chair back and he stands up. And he spends 15 minutes lecturing Joe and Art on the value of Kalazi Italian bread. He talks about the recipe that his great-great-grandmother brought over from Sicily. 
He talks about the people that have worked there in his location for 30 and 40 years who have dedicated their life to making great bread. He talks about the ingredients, and he looks at that, that grocery store bread, and he talks about all the artificial ingredients and rolls his, his nose up. It tastes like cardboard. He talks about how they source their ingredients and the care that they put into their bread. And after he felt as, as though he had fully educated Joe and Art on the value of Calaisi Italian bread, he sat back down. Now what Joe and Art were selling was nothing that was special. They, they sold leased commercial trucks. That's all they did. Because Mr. Calaisi has to get his bread to the grocery stores and his bread to the distributors. And so these guys, these trucks, so they're kind of, they're financial instruments, they're these lease documents, but it's a truck. And until that moment, as far as Mr. Calaisi was concerned, a truck was a truck was a truck. And Joe, who was a master at dealing with people, he leaned forward and he put his hand on the Calaisi Italian bread. And he says, Mr. Calaisi, he said, that's exactly what we've been trying to tell you. We're the lazy Italian bread of the truck leasing industry. And they both sat there for a moment and they just stared at each other. And then Mr. Clazy broke out in a big grin and he reached across the table and he shook Joe's hand. Now, it's important to, 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 to I guess, that I tell you that he didn't like, this wasn't a movie, like they all hugged each other and they signed the contract. They still had to negotiate the contract. They still had to give some things up. But when they walked through the door, they had nothing. And when they walked out of the door, they had heat. And I'm going to show you exactly how that happened. So Joe, he's a, he's a master of dealing with human beings. And he did a couple of things that were really important here. The first was leveraging non-complementary behavior. And what that means is that when someone attacks you or someone comes at you or you get an objection or there's a, there's a hard question that you get asked and you've all been there where you get this really hard question and all of a sudden it sets you back on your heels, rather than responding defensively or fighting back, as you might imagine you might do if someone stuck their finger on your face and told you that you were wrong, he just leaned back in his chair, relaxed, assertive confidence. We'll hear that that term several times, that phrase several times in this talk. So when he did that, it pulled Joe in, or Mr. Glazy in. Then, when he challenged Mr. Glazy, and Mr. Glazy started telling his story, Joe and I listened. Every single human being has an insatiable need to feel important, to feel significant, to feel like they matter. Whenever your prospect, whenever your customer has an opportunity to tell their story, for example, when you're walking around their facility and they're telling you all about their facility and you're listening to them, they love you for that. They lean into that. That's when usually the entire dynamic changes. So as they're sitting there listening to Mr. Clancy, they make him feel important. And by the way, when you make someone feel important, you give them the greatest gift that you can give another human being. And that's going to come back and be important for getting this contract signed. It's also, they also used or leveraged something called the investment effect. And all that means is that when people are investing in the process, when they're matching your effort, when you've got your buyers doing something, the outcome means more to them. Because up to that point, all Art had been doing is showing up and throwing up. He'd been just talking about trucks and rates. Mr. Clazy didn't have to do anything other than saying, no, your rates are too high. 
But at the moment that Joe engaged Mr. Clazy and caused Mr. Clazy to have to invest in the relationship, to have to match Joe's effort, Mr. Clazy became more wedded to the end. Like he, he the, the getting to an outcome meant more to him, which caused him to want to at least give them an opportunity to work on the deal. There's also a concept called commitment and consistency, and that is the way that human beings look at a promise, or look at something that we say. When Mr. Kalazi got locked into explaining the value of why his product was, was worth the cost, much more than his competitors, it was hard at that point when Joe said, well, we're just like you, to go back against that. To do so would create something called cognitive dissonance, which is painful mental stress when we try to hold two opposing values in our mind at the same time. So they put him in a box where he really couldn't get past that. They also leverage something called the similarity box. People have a tendency to trust and believe people that are like you. The easiest way to leverage the similarity bias is just to speak someone else's language. And as simple as it seems, when they said, we're the Kalazi baking of the truck leasing industry, at that moment, they were speaking Mr. Kalazi's language, which creates a level of trust. And finally, they leverage the obligation. We're going to come back to this toward the end of this talk. But they made Mr. Clazy feel important. They listened to his story, story. They gave him the greatest gift that you can give another human being. And in that moment, he felt a level of obligation. He had invested in the relationship. He was in a box he couldn't get out of. And he felt like he needed to give him something. So when he smiled and he reached his hand across the table, at that moment, the door was open to get a deal done. And that's exactly what they did. Today, by the way, Art is the president of Penske Truck Leasing, one of my largest clients. I've heard him tell the story a dozen times. It's a true story. And he, he spends time with every sales. I train all the salespeople. He trains, spends time with every sales class. And he talks to them about the value of a relationship, the value of managing emotions. That it's not about a truck. It's not about a service or a product. It's not about technology. It's about how we interact with each other and how we deal with each other and how we build those emotional connections so that we create an environment where people want to do business with us. Essentially, in this story, if you think about what happened, and I, I, I don't doubt that for a lot of you, you've been in similar tense situations. In this moment, it was the person, Joe, who exerted the greatest amount of emotional control. He was able to think on his feet. He was able to manage his emotions. And by doing so, he was able to influence the emotions of Mr. Glazy. In every sales conversation, emotions matter. This is why emotional discipline is so important. The person who can control their emotions, their emotions has the highest probability of getting their desired outcome. When my son was a sophomore in college, he went to work for the senior living facility. Now, this wasn't just any senior living facility. This was a place for high net worth people. You had to have a minimum of a $3 million net worth to get in, and you had to put down a $300,000 non-refundable deposit, $300,000. And this was a, a, a different type of senior, senior living facility. You've probably seen these, maybe you, you have elderly parents or in one, but essentially when you bought in, you'd move into a villa along this beautiful lake. And, and then you would move, as you got older, into a condo, and then you'd move into an apartment, and then you would move into assisted living, then you would move into a nursing home, then into hospice, and then they would stick you in the morgue. Essentially, this was the very last decision that you would ever make in your life about where you were going to live. $300,000 non-refundable. 
My son's job was to go get barbecue from the barbecue joint across the street, get coffee, do whatever. But he also got to come into meetings with the marketing team so he could learn how to be a marketer. So he's in this one meeting, and it's a really tense meeting. He said they're in the conference room, and up on the, the wall of the conference room is this big monitor, big TV, and all the, the big TV is a big head that's the CEO of the company that is basically giving it to the marketing and sales team for not selling enough deposits. Like any construction, construction project, they needed to cash flow. So they needed to have the deposits in so they could afford to break ground. And they had a lot of egg on their face because they were building this on a really large campus, my, my son's college, and they made promises to the college, they made promises to the people that put their deposits down, they made promises to their stakeholders and shareholders. So this guy was in the face of the marketing and sales team saying, you better get this figured out. After he gets off the screen, my son said it's almost a fist fight. The salespeople are screaming at the marketers that they're not getting them good enough leads, that the leads are weak. Probably seen this movie. And the marketers are screaming at the salespeople, no, you're weak. You're not following up. You're not calling. You're not doing your job. And back and forth they went, everybody blaming everybody, until finally my son said they all just gave up and walked out the door and nothing happened. So my kid, who was a total rainmaker, decided that he was going to go do something about it. So he goes back to this little cube where they had him working. He goes in the CRM and he pulls down 300 leads that the salespeople had abandoned. They maybe you know, marked it, this isn't qualified, or they didn't respond when I called them or sent them an email. And the kid picks up the phone and he starts calling. And what was amazing is that within 30 days, he had booked $5 million in deposits. $5 million. The kid's 19 years old. When they went back and they took a look at what had happened, they looked at the leads. In most cases, the salesperson had followed up once. In some cases, they hadn't called at all. But this kid goes in and he prospects them. And what he essentially exposed to this team is that the real estate agents that were working there, these are professional salespeople, were essentially a group of rain, or rain barrels. They were sitting in the backyard rusting. They were sitting there waiting. Somebody brings something to them on a silver platter. Mouths open, maybe something will drop from the sky. And by the way, they all got mad at him. They said he was doing it wrong. They said he was supposed to do some research and learn all these other things. But this kid grew up coming to my office in the afternoons after school and calling a list. They used to make him make cold calls at the football practice. That's why he never wanted to go into sales. And uh, so he was used to doing that. And my, you know, my mantra to him was always, just pick up the phone and call them. Like the worst thing that happens is you have a conversation. The worst thing that happens is you don't know everything, but at least you got them on the phone versus planning to plan to plan to plan to plan to plan to come sometimes make a call and talk to someone. He essentially proved what we know about rainmakers. Rainmakers just talk with people. You can write this down in your books. Some of you got notebooks out there. I'm going to give you the basic, simple formula for how to explode your business and your income. Talk with people. The more people you talk with, the more you're going to sell. The more people you talk with, the more you're going to sell. All he did was pick up the phone and talk with people. And, and this is what we know about rainmakers from a mindset shift. Rainmakers, they just believe they can go make it happen. Rainmakers, they don't get stopped by what ifs. They don't sit around and think whether the person is qualified or not. They go figure it out. Rainmakers look at the world and say, just like my son said, there's a problem. I'm going to go try to fix it. And that's exactly what he did. And it reminded me the story uh, of 
of, this is a, an old parable. Ronald Reagan first told this story a long time ago. But of this, these two universities, or this university, excuse me, that is, um, this putting together uh, this program so they can study optimists and pessimists. And they bring in these two little boys. One is the most optimistic little boy, optimistic little boy in the world. One's the most pessimistic little boy in the world. And in one room, they fill it up with toys. Everything an eight-year-old boy would, wanna, would want. It's like Santa Claus on steroids. And in the other room, they go down to a local stable, and they fill the room top to bottom with horse food, horse manure. They take the most pessimistic young man, they put him in the room full of toys. Everything you would ever want. They take the most optimistic young man, and they put him in the room full of food. And they're testing to see if I can change the environment, can I change the person's attitude? They look in the, the, the one-way mirror that the researchers use to see the young, young man, and they, the first young man, the, the pessimistic young man, and they watch him for a little while. He plays, he plays some video games, plays with some toys. But a few minutes in, he's bored. He's, he says it's the wrong toys. He's complaining because he doesn't have friends there. Everything's not right in the room. They could just do this. It's too hot, too cold. And when they got tired of watching this entitled little brat sit on the floor and whine about everything, even though he had everything, they went over to look at the kid who was in the room full of poop. And when they looked in, they were shocked because what they saw was not what they expected to see. They thought he would be sitting on the floor crying, but instead he had found a pitchfork that one of the workers who was putting the horse poop in the room had left, and he was in the middle of that pile shoveling horse manure as fast as he could. Now, I hang out around horses as my only hobby, and I can tell you about horse poop, you're a hunter around horses, that when you, once you start shoveling, it dries out, and if you're sweating, it gets all over you. So he's covered in horse poop, top to bottom, shoveling as fast as they can, and the researchers can't figure out what in the world's going on. So one of them circles around, and they, uh, they, they knock on the door, and they open the door up, and they say, son, son, what are you doing? And the kid ignores him. He's shuffling like crazy. Son, stop! Kid's still going, not ignoring him. Finally, the, the, the researcher says, Son, stop! The kid doesn't even put the pitchfork down. He turns around and looks at the researcher. He says, What? And the researcher says, What are you doing? And the kid looks back at him like he's lost his mind. He says, Sir, I don't have time to talk to you. He said, you see this pile of horse poop? There's a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> that is how rainmakers look at the world. They look at prospects that way. They look at opportunities that way. Rainmakers understand that there are only three things that you can control. You can control your actions, what you choose to do. You can control your reactions, how do you respond to situations, just like Joe and Art did. And you can control your mindset, what you choose to believe about selling. I have a choice to believe that if you have pipeline, time, probability, emotion, and people discipline, that you will be successful. And this is it. I also believe that the number one reason for failure in sales is an empty pipeline. Number one reason. It's always been that way, it will always be that way. And the number one reason why you have an empty pipeline is because you're not prospecting every day, every day, every day, every day. Every single day. You see, in sales, the pipe is life. This is why pipeline discipline is number one. See, most salespeople are riding on the desperation roller coaster, hanging out at the feast or famine amusement park, up and down, up and down. 
And they have days when it's really, really good, they're full, and days when it's really, really bad. I was just coaching a rep who said, I just struggle because I've got all of this work and then I got nothing. And then I don't know where to, where to begin. And I'm like, begin by picking up the phone and do it every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. Because when you are at the bottom of the desperation roller coaster, you lose emotional control. It's something called the universal law of need. The more you need to win, the more likely you are to lose. You get to the end of the quarter, you've got one deal in your pipeline, you need that deal to make the month and make the quarter, you are going to lose that deal. And if you get that deal, you're gonna give away most of your commission check and your profits in order to land it. This is the thing about prospecting. Prospecting gives you emotional control. There's this thing called emotional contagion. Right? It's our ability in a conversation to transfer our emotions to other people. I said non-complimentary behavior. It's relaxed assertive confidence. See, this is why top performers, ultra performers are fanatical prospectors. I mean, they understand that the pipe is like, they get that. But they also understand that when you have a full pipeline, Everything else gets better. When you have a full pipeline, you sell better. When you have a full pipeline, you discover better. When you have a full pipeline, you deal with objections better. When you have a full pipeline, you negotiate better. You close better. Because a full pipeline gives you the ability to have relaxed assertive confidence. I can do entire days, two days, three days a week on how to develop emotional intelligence. And they're good classes. And it teaches you something. But I can also help you fill up your pipeline. And if you've got a full pipe, you have instant emotional intelligence. You instantly have the ability to sell like you don't have to sell. And it changes everything. Now, when we talk about prospecting and anything else in sales, it always begins with time. Time discipline. You see, the greatest predictor of your success in sales and in business as a leader, as a sales rep, as a business owner, is how you choose to use your time. And don't get me wrong, these are choices. You control your actions, your reactions, your mindset. And you have three choices with time. You can choose to do trivial things like watch cat videos. You can choose to do important things, and there's lots of important things you have to do. Send emails, put things in the CRM, do reports, check on customer orders and problems and issues. And then you can do impactful things. And the most impactful thing that you can do as a self-professional is put something into the pipeline and advance it through the pipeline. The problem for most salespeople is that they make the choice to do important things over impactful things. You come in in the morning, what do you do? You get on email. Then when it's prospecting time, you've got a million customer problems you've got to solve before you actually go talk to someone who can do business with you. Rather than focusing on advancing deals through the pipe, you do a whole bunch of other things that have nothing to do with making an impact. Because making an impact is hard, because it requires you to go talk with people. And we've already learned that the more people you talk with, the more you're going to sell. So the problem for us when it's hard things, difficult things, what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to procrastinate. We put things off. So if you want to wrap time discipline in one big bow, it's sacrificing what you want now, easy, for what you want most, your goals. And that means you have to do the hard things first. And if you want to change your life, if you want to change your, your sales day, start front-loading your day with impact. Front-load your day with open new doors. Front-load your day with advancing your pipeline. Front-load your day with following up on active leads. And then do all the other things. 
It's about eating the frog. It's a, a, an analogy that's been used since the 1800s to describe how we take things off our plate that we don't like to do. Mark Twain says if you got to eat a frog, do it first thing in the morning. you got two of them, eat the biggest one first, this is, which is why you've got to start with prospecting. It's just this imaginary nasty thing that you have to do every single day that you make the decision for in your heart that you're going to start your day with. Eat the frog. And the biggest frog in your life is prospecting. This means you've got to protect the time that you have during the day. From 8 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock in the afternoon for prospecting. Look at ultra-high performers. They're selfish with their time. Look at your top salespeople. If you're a leader and you walk in the door and you try to get them to do something, they are masters at making you go away. And you go away eventually because you recognize that they're rainmakers and if you mess them up, it's not in your best interest. Top performers, ultra-high performers, protect the golden hours for spending time with people, for talking with people. They do all of that other stuff before and after. Watch them. It's all about talking with people. And what ultra-high performers get is the more I talk with people, the more I prospect, the more I'm out there, the more I'm networking, the more I'm working inside my own accounts, working to move into a different division or even a different building in some cases. The more I'm doing that, the more I'm bidding the probability in my favor that I'm going to win. The more people I talk with, the luckier I get. And if I talk with qualified people, it gets even better. Ultra performers are masters at the probability game. They don't spend time with deals that aren't going to close. There's a saying that there's two winners in every sale. The salesperson who closes the deal and the salesperson who realized early on that they had no shot at it and got out so that they could go spend their time on something else. You only have so much time, time discipline, so you spend your time on the deals that are most likely to close. And that means for you, what you have to get close with and get a grip on reality with is, what are the deals that you can close? Which ones fit you? Which ones have the right timeline, the right buying window? Are you talking to the right people? Do, do they have the right makeup for what you do? And all you gotta do is just go watch a brand new salesperson, put them in the field, and what are they gonna do? They spend their time chasing a lot of stuff that's never gonna close. Or that if you if you are a PL owner, you're not taken because it doesn't produce enough profit or it's the wrong deal for your organization. So they spend time talking with people, building the pipe, and they qualify the deal. But once they qualify them, ultra high performers are squirrels. There's a great documentary, you can find it still on YouTube, it was by the BBC called Daylight Robbers. And this documentary followed, they had two, there were two of them, but they followed people, families, in the UK who were feeding birds. And apparently in the UK they like to feed birds. And they, they followed their battle against these squirrels. Because they would put the bird feed out, and what would the squirrels do? They would come in and eat all the bird feed. So the homeowners would come up with all of these contraptions to keep the squirrels out. Little cones, they would hook up wires, they would have little twirly things to keep the, the squirrels from getting in. And then the homeowners would go to work and the cameras would come on and they would watch those squirrels every day chasing that bird seed. And every day the squirrels won. Every single day. They never gave up. That group of salespeople at the senior living facility, the ones that were professionals, they were given up after one call. They were sometimes given up before they even called. Squirrels never quit. Once they know the bird sees there, they're going. And the squirrel, they find every way to get in. 
And this is when you start looking at ultra performers and the way that they operate, they're not letting anything get in the way. They're showing up, they're walking on the back dock, they're calling, they're texting, they're direct messaging, they're emailing, they're, they're LinkedIn and they're video prospecting, they're sending smoke signals. They're doing whatever it takes to get in because 24 seven, the only thing that they think about is bird seed, is closing the sale, is getting into a prospect before their competitor does. And in being persistent, which is a meta skill, in terms of bending probability in your favor, what they tap into is something called the Katy Perry paradigm. Now, I know you probably never heard of this because I totally made this up. But I travel pretty much for a living. I mean, the pandemic cut me off for a little while, but before the pandemic, I was doing, but in 2019, 311 nights in, in a row in a hotel. And I say in a row, but in, through the year. And, uh, and I fly in out of Parksville. So you know how big the, the airport is. So I would get out of the airport, I've, I've been on some airplane, and I'm, I'm, I live in Augusta, so I got about two hours of drive time to compress, or decompress. And one day I'm, I'm in Conyers, Georgia, and I'm heading back to Augusta, I'm in the far left lane on I-20, and I'm cruising along, and I get this weird feeling that somebody's looking at me. I know you've been there. <laughs> so I look over, and sure enough, there's a dude in a Jaguar, and he's looking at me. I look at him, he looks at me, and when he looks at me, dude totally shames me. He just goes, just like that. And um, I, I knew instantly what he, was, what he was shaming me for, and I like, my face turned red, I got completely embarrassed. First, I put my, my hands back on the wheel because I wasn't dropping with my hands. Because up until that moment, I was listening to the song on the radio. I had my hands in the air like I just didn't care. And I was screaming like I was singing at the top of my lungs. I am the eye of the tiger. Katy Perry. I don't like Katy Perry. I'm a Taylor Swift fan. Straight up. <laughs> I've been to the concerts. I don't, like, I don't like Katy Perry. And in fact, I told my wife that that was a stupid song. In fact, I said, this is how you know you're old. Who's writing this stuff? It's awful. But there I am singing it. Because every time I walk on stage, every sales kickoff, every meeting, every conference, everywhere, guess what song they're playing? Katy Perry, I have a tiger. She's playing and playing and playing. So it just got in my head. What ultra performers understand is that by showing up, being there, you know, talking with people, never giving up, that they create familiarity. And familiarity leads to liking. It was the number of times that I saw Katy Perry, or listened to Katy Perry, that moved me into that song. No different than how top performers look at their prospects, look at their territory, look inside their own account, their existing accounts. Are you walking around seeing people, talking with people? They use familiarity to bend probability in their favor that those prospects and opportunities are going to engage. Back to the senior living facility. One of the questions that I have in my head, and maybe you have in your head, is how does a 19-year-old kid get people who are in their 60s and 70s and have a high net worth to writing checks? I was baffled. After he got enough money in for them to break ground, the CEO flew in. They got him in the corporate jet and flew him over the college campus. And he got to deliver the, uh, the speech at the groundbreaking, which he loved because he likes to be on stage talking. And my, my wife and I went up to, to see him, tell him how good he was. But afterwards at lunch, I'm like, okay, 
explain to me how you did this. Because I'm not buying it. Like, I'm, you, like you, take, you get people and you call them up. I get that they came to you. But why in the world would these people give you a check for $300,000 It's non-refundable? And he said, honestly, I don't know. He said, here's what I did. He said, I would call him up on the phone and ask him to come see me. I told him I'd just drive him around campus and take him on a tour. Now, a lot of people were alumni. So they would come on campus, and they had been in school in the 60s and the 50s. And they would hop in his car with him, and of course, you know, his mom and I grimaced because we'd seen his car. <laughs> and, and, and he said, they would just talk. They would, they would, oh, let's go see that building over there. Let's go. And they would tell him the story about when they were doing this thing, or they were having this party, or when they got together, or their best friend, or their girlfriend, or their boyfriend, or whatever was happening. And he said, they would just talk. And he said, and the thing is about old people, he said, they always got stuff that's wrong with them, these ailments, and they want to talk about them. And they tell you all about like, the surgery they've been through, this they've been through. And he said, honestly, I got nothing. He goes, look at me. I'm 19 years old. There's nothing wrong with me. And uh, he said, so all I did was just listen to them. I said, interesting. I said, I, I know what you did. And I told him the story of when he got out of high school, the two of us had gone to a trip to Japan. It was this high school trip. I wouldn't let him go off by himself because I'm a helicopter parent, so you got to go with me. And we got on an airplane, go to Japan, and we were touring uh, Tokyo, decided to go to Kyoto. Kyoto's the cultural heart of Japan. You hear a bit in Japan, and in Tokyo, everything's underground. In Kyoto, everything's above ground. So they get these green buses that go all throughout the city. And it's really cool. It's like, like going back and like watching Mayberry, uh, Andy Griffith's show. Uh, when you get on the bus, all around there are seats. And in the seats are old people, mostly little old ladies. And they have little hats on, they've got the proper purses on, and they've got gloves on, like the 1950s. And the, even the bus, the bus driver has a, a hat on and gloves on. And in the middle of the bus, while the bus is going on the street, all the young people, including me, we hung on to the handles. And we, we rode to the bus. So my son and I got on the bus to go to our Airbnb, and we're hanging on the handles, and right across from us is a young Japanese businessman. Now the thing about young Japanese businessmen in Japan is that they like to practice their English on people that they think speak English, which doesn't work really well on me because when you start speaking Japanese to me and I try to speak Japanese back to you, it makes me really, really nervous, so I switch into Spanish and it confuses everybody. <laughs> So this cat's trying to talk to us, and he doesn't speak English well at all. Like we're doing sign language. We have no idea what he's talking about. And he doesn't understand English very well, so he's doing sign language. So we're sitting there in this frustrating conversation, and then suddenly out of, out of nowhere, this guy goes, Van Halen. And my son and I, like in unison, go, Van Halen! And then everything changes to music and bands. I mean, at one point, we're cruising down the street in Kyoto, singing a Duran Duran song. And we have like we're this total connection. And we're talking about music, we're singing songs, and we're so into it that I didn't notice the bus coming to a stop. And suddenly the bus stops, it's the young man stop, he's got one of those satchels, he reaches into the satchel and he brings out this box, it's wrapped in green paper and string. And he goes, and I went, that's okay, because I don't want to be obligated, but he insists. So I got the box, I bowed, and then he turned around and got off the bus before I could give him anything back. Instant guilt. 
We get to our Airbnb. We go upstairs. We get this little tiny itty bitty table in this little tiny itty bitty apartment, and uh, and and we're like we're so curious about this box that we can't help ourselves. We start pulling the, the string off. We open it up. We look inside. It was not what I was expecting. I thought it was going to be a Forrest Gump moment. I thought there was going to be a box of chocolate, but it was not. There were five pieces of raw fish wrapped up in seaweed in the box. <laughs> so I reached inside and I grabbed one and I popped it in my mouth. And my son goes, no! He's like, you can't eat that, daddy. He said that's raw fish in a box in this dude's backpack on a hot summer day and you don't even know who he is. You are going to die. And I said, I gotta eat it. I said, it could have been his dinner. He gave it to me. He gave me this gift. I'm obligated to do something with it. I can't do that. And just throw it away. So I ate all five pieces. And folks, it was awful. It was awful. But then I went downstairs, because there was a little apartment stair next to our Airbnb, and I bought this young man a gift. I put it in my backpack, and for the next week, I carried it all over Kyoto looking for him so that I could give him something back. Never found it. But the story came back to me just in time to teach my son a lesson about what he had actually done. Why people gave him the money. It was simple. He, unlike the salespeople before him, took time to listen. The, the salespeople, when they were walking in, the old people were walking in, they were like, this place does this, this place does this, place does this, place does this, place does this, place does this. They were pitch slapping. They were talking about themselves. A very unlikable thing to do. My son, on the other hand, he was listening. And in fact, he answered the five questions that every person is asking of every salesperson every time they engage. Do I like you? Do you listen to me? Do you make me feel important? Do you give me my problems? Do I trust and believe you? And when you answer those five questions in the affirmative, it becomes almost impossible for people not to advance to the next step with you. And if you think about it, likability. In most cases, right, when we walk in to see someone or we pick up the phone and call them or we're on a video call, likability is how we're dressed, how we look, our confidence level. But the truth is the easiest, fastest way to be likable is to ask questions and listen to the other person. It's discovery. It's why in the sales process, discovery is where you should be spending 80% of your time. And the most unlikable human being in your life is the person who's pitch slapping, is the person who is talking about themselves. Do you make me feel, do you listen to me? Do you make me feel important? But the easiest, fastest way to make someone feel important, to make them feel significant, is to just listen to them. Think about Joe with Mr. Kalazi. Mr. Kalazi's telling his story, and Joe and Art are listening. It makes him feel good. It makes him feel important. By the way, when you listen to someone, they tell you their story. And it's inside their story that they're teaching you how to understand them. So when you build value bridges from how you solve problems to their, their problems, you're doing it in their language rather than your language, which makes them feel even more important because then they say, well, this person really gets me. They understand me. And if you think about your own life, the people in your life that you would describe, these people get me, those are the most important relationships in your life and it is totally available to you in sales. And when people believe that you understand them, that's when they begin to trust you. 
Do I like you? Do you listen to me? Do you make me feel important? Do you give me my problems? Do I trust and believe you? And when my son answered those five questions, he didn't know what he was doing. He was just too stupid to do anything else. But, but when he answered those five questions, they couldn't help themselves. They gave him money. If I had an hour to spend with you to just talk about this, I could give you example after example after example of exactly how this happens. And if you think about those deals when you've been on the zone, you've seen this happen too. We're gonna, I'm gonna give you one last story, then we're gonna take a break. When we come back, we're actually gonna run a workshop on prospecting objections. So when you're a squirrel and when you're calling and people tell you no, how do you handle that? I'm gonna walk you through a three-step framework that'll make it infinitely easier to get past those. So we'll take a 15-minute break and we're gonna come back and we're gonna run this workshop. We got some people that are gonna come up on the stage and they're gonna run through some of these turnarounds with me, but I'm gonna show you exactly how to do this. So make sure you come back to that. Um, before we go, the, just a quick story. This is Bear Bryant, if you don't know who Bear Bryant is, and I'm not an Alabama fan, so this is, this is no reflection on my, on my love or hate for Alabama, which is mostly hate. Um, <laughs> but Bear Bryant was at this uh, alumni event, and he was talking to a group of people just like this, and he was telling a story about when he first came to the University of Alabama, and he was down in uh, the, the, the lower Alabama area, or LA, uh, and he was on a recruiting trip for this five-star recruit. He went down there, he said, I gave this, this young man my best pitch. He said, I, I shucked and I jived and I tried to get him to come to the University of Alabama, but he turned me down and he said he was gonna go to Auburn. And um, he said, I was, I was embarrassed and I was ashamed because I thought I was a better salesperson than that, so I tucked my tail, headed back to Tuscaloosa, but on the way, I was a little hungry, so I stopped at this diner, this little meet and three, so I could get some lunch. He said, when I walked in, um, I sat down at the counter, and of course, if you're down in lower Alabama, people don't know you. When he sat down, he said, the proprietor of the place said, you're not from around here, are you? He said, no, and he said, well, what are you doing down here? He said, well, I'm the brand new coach at the University of Alabama, and I was a little hungry, I was on a recruiting trip, didn't work out very well. And the proprietor says, uh, he says, oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in here. He says, I could just open this place up, he said, would it be possible if I could get a signed or an autographed picture of you that can hang on my wall? Because people down here would love that. So Coach Bryant got the guy's information, went back to his office, and he said, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't have any pictures of myself. He said, if I gave it to my assistant, we figured it out. I signed the picture, sent it back to him. He said, 20 years, I'm back down in the same neck of woods, working on this recruit. And uh, he said, I'm working hard. I need this kid to come play for Alabama this year. I need him. He turns me down. He said, I got no luck down there. He said, I go back to, to Tuscaloosa. Um, he said, I'm just defeated. Two days later, I'm sitting in my office. My phone rings. This is this kid, the one that turned me down. And he said, he's really, really nervous. He says, um, he says uh, Coach Bryant? Coach Bryant says, yes. He goes, um, so I, I'm just wondering if maybe uh, if, if it'd be okay if I, I could change my mind and come play for you. Because Bryant says, um, at that moment, I'm trying to play really cool, relax the sort of confidence. I don't want to give anything away, but I want to come out of my skin. And he says, sure. He said, that would be very good. He would love to have you. And uh, he said, but I'm, I'm just curious, what changed your mind? He said, well, he said, I, I, after you left, I went over to my granddaddy's house to have dinner, 
and told my granddad you'd come to see me and that I turned you down, I was gonna go play for Auburn. And, uh, and he said my granddaddy got mad. He said he got angry at me. He said, he, he told me he was gonna disown me if I didn't play for you. I was never gonna eat over here again, he said, because he knows you. He said he knows you and he knows that you are a man of honor and character and that you can teach me something and that I need to go play for you or else I'm out of the family. <laughs> Coach Bryant, he said, I, I said, I'm a little bit nervous because he said, I can't place this, his granddad. He says, he knows me. I can't place him. And uh, he says, son, I'm, I said, I, I, I'm just curious because I'm not sure I, I know how I know your granddaddy. How, how, does, how does your granddaddy know me? And he said, well, he said, he met you a long time ago. He said, because if you go into his diner right now, his proudest possession is the picture of you that's hanging on the wall. Coach Bryant looked out at the crowd. Um, and he, he said, he said, I learned just this most valuable lesson. He said, it's a lesson I have to learn in my life from time to time. He said, it don't cost nothing to be nice. If we learn anything from the first story and these other stories that I've told you along the way, this last one, it's this. My Angela's credit was saying this, but a lot of other people have said this as well. And that is that people will forget what you said. They'll forget what you did. But they'll never, ever, ever forget how you made them feel. And this is exactly why the pipe is life. Because when you have a full pipeline, when you can sell like you don't have to sell, you have the discipline to manage your emotions so that you can influence the emotions of other people so that they want to do business with you. All right, thank you all very much. We'll be back in 15 minutes, Prospecting Objectives. Thank you.